Please be seated. This morning's message is entitled, Authentication of the Messiah. Wouldn't it be great if there was no wheelchairs, no canes, <laughs> no need for hospitals, no sickness, no disease, no need for medical doctors, no aging process? Wouldn't that be wonderful? doesn't sound like to you it would be. To me it would be. It would be a wonderful thing from our perspective. And yet it's not reality, is it, in our lives? And isn't it interesting, as we come to this text, there has never been a point uh, after the Garden of Eden where the world has been without such things as we've mentioned, disease, sickness, suffering, pain. It'll continue on, as we will refer to that this morning as well. And where do we look? Who can we look to? As we come to the continued exposition of the book called the Gospel According to John, and as we begin to open up chapter 9, we need to reiterate something to ourselves, particularly for those of us who have been here on an ongoing basis, lest we forget. And for those who maybe have been new, you need to be reminded why John is writing the things that he's written. So would you turn with me to John chapter 20? It is, by the way, in case you didn't catch it, it is one of my objectives with you as a congregation that whether you want to or you don't want to, by the time we're done with this book, you will have memorized John 20, verses 30 and 31. But in those verses, John 20, verses 30 and 31, because if you don't understand these verses or know them, you don't know anything about the gospel according to John. In verse 30 it says, Many other signs therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But then he says this, verse 31, But these have been written, why? That you may believe, what? That Jesus is the Christ, which is what? The Son of God, why is that? And that believing you may have life in his name. The objective of John recording the things that he has recorded in this book, including chapter 9, have an objective behind it. And it is that you understand and that I understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life through his name. That is why this has been recorded. This particular chapter that we come to, chapter 9, uh, has come to be known by such things as the healing of the blind man, the man born blind, Jesus heals the blind man, etc., etc. In fact, some of your study Bibles probably have such titles as that. It is also a very, very familiar text to those who are students of the Word of God, as well as those who very casually read the Word of God, or some who have never read it, but have heard the stories in it, and one of them would be the story of the blind man. Chapter 9 is also a very important bridge for us. Why? 
We have come from the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 7 and 8. And this is going to bridge us to another very important text, and that's chapter 10, which is dealing with the Good Shepherd in which he will address, and that needs to be kept in mind when we go through chapter 9, in which he will address the fact that Jesus Christ is the Good Shepherd, and there are many religious leaders who are nothing more than thieves and robbers, who are nothing more than wolves in sheep's clothing, and while they are leading as clergy and leading as religious leaders, they are not the good shepherds and uh, are not leading the people the way they should. This chapter bridges that. And in saying that, it is very important to remember, if you turn with me to John chapter 8 for just one second and verse 12, it is important to remember that Jesus Christ has recently taught this. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. He has instructed his disciples and those who were there for the Feast of Booths on this particular area where he has shown that it is Jesus Christ who is the light to God, that is, understanding who God is. He is the light to men to open up their understanding uh, to who God is. And he is the light for truth, that we can understand truth as opposed to error and lies and so forth. Here in this context, we will see that he will literally open up the eyes of a blind man physically so that he will be able to have light for the first time physically. We will also see in this chapter that he is the spiritual light of the world in which he is able to take men out of spiritual darkness to spiritual light. And that term, as you notice as I read, is found again in chapter 9, verse 5, that I am the light of the world. So it's become very significant. Let me give you the outline to what we will be dealing with in chapter 9 in very brief statement. In this chapter, today we will deal with the physical miracle that is performed, and that is entitled by myself, The Authentication of the Messiah, verses 1 through 12. Lord willing, next week we will look at the Pharisees' investigation of such a miracle, and then the third part that we will give to the chapter is spiritual sight and spiritual darkness how they are contrasted in this chapter. But as we jump into it today, let me begin again in setting the stage by saying that there are credentials that were outlined in the Old Testament, credentials that would identify who the Messiah is. And those credentials had to be met by the one that would be claiming to be the Messiah, to be the promised one the one sent of God, <clears throat> the Son of God, the light of the world, the one who is the Christ, the one who is able to deliver us to God to be able to deliver us out of sin. For example, he had to come through the line of David. If he didn't come through the line of David, not qualified. He had to come through Abraham. Did he not come through Abraham? He would not be qualified. And these were things that people could look for who were looking for the Messiah. Even one we're familiar with, he had to be born in Bethlehem. 
If the Messiah was not born in Bethlehem, someone was claiming to be the Messiah, he was not truly the Messiah. Well, we know those things. One of the other things that was a credential of the coming Messiah was that he had to be able to perform miracles. That he would have the ability to perform miracles, including, as we see here, to open the eyes of the blind. Keep your finger here for just a moment. We're going to go to two other books. First of all, let's go to the book of Isaiah. And I just want you to see three verses. You just read one of them. But Isaiah chapter 35, and it's interesting, a side trip there, that within these passages there's a look into the millennial kingdom, there's a look into the future return of the Lord as well as the original coming of the Lord. But here in Isaiah chapter 35, for our purposes, verse 5, we read in the responsive reading, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and people were looking for that. Go with me to Isaiah 42 and verse 7. I'll just look at these two verses in Isaiah. There's others even in Isaiah. Isaiah 42 and verse 7. Speaking of my servant in verse 1, my chosen one. In other words, the Messiah, verse 7. To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. And that was to be a sign that they were looking for, to identify the Messiah. So when we come to John chapter 9, it's a very significant situation where we're dealing with a healing of a blind man. The next thing I want you to see, and we'll turn to a second text, and I'll keep you in one book for this as well, is this is not the only healing of a blind man. And again, I think that's significant for us. Why? John's purpose of this particular miracle is that we understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is not by far the only time he opened the eyes of the blind. He did it on many an occasion. Turn with me to Matthew. Let's look at a couple of verses there. And it's interesting because Luke is the book of miracles, but Matthew, let's just look at Matthew alone. Matthew chapter 9. <clears throat> Matthew 9, I want you to see it. Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 31. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. After he had come into the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then what? He touched their eyes, saying, Be it done to you according to your word. Verse 30, their eyes were opened. You can look at the rest of it. Go to chapter 12, same book of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. Then there was brought to him, and by the way, it's the same book. That's why I'm walking you through. This isn't the same recording of the same instance. These are different instances. Chapter 12, verses 22 and 23. Then there was brought to him demon-possessed man, who was blind and dumb, and he healed him, so that the dumb man spoke and what? Saw. Go with me to chapter 15, verse 30, same book. Chapter 15, verse 30. Okay, and great multitudes came to him. Who were they bringing? They were bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, dumb, and many others, 
and they laid him down at his feet, and he what? Healed them. Go with me to chapter 20, same book. Chapter 20. And this, by the way, helps us to distinguish with the stuff that's going on in the name of Christ today. This was common with the Lord Jesus Christ and identified him in chapter 20, beginning in verse 29. And as they were going out from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men. These are two different blind men that we saw earlier. Sitting on the road, healing the, excuse me, hearing that Jesus passed by, they cried out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Verse 32, what would you have me to do? And they said to him, Lord, basically we want to see our eyes to be open. Verse 34, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. One more, Matthew chapter 21, verse 14. Matthew 21, verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and what happened? He healed them. You got the point. We're in John chapter 9. And I want you to see that this is not the only instance. So when you talk about the blind man being healed, there are many, many recordings of blind people being healed in the Word of God. But this one that we are looking at in John chapter 9 is very significant. Why? Because it's going to show us two things. Go back to John chapter 9. One thing it's going to show us is that Jesus is the Christ. This one, undoubtedly, is going to show us that he's the Messiah. Secondly, according to the context in verse 3, if you look at it, it's also going to show us what? The works of God, verse 3. So the miracle itself is also going to show us how God works and what he does and what he did do by the word of God itself disclosing that. So let's take a look at the context now, and let's begin to take a look at it, realizing John's putting this in here so that we can identify, one thing, that Jesus definitely is the Messiah. Secondly, that God is doing a miraculous work, and we see how God works. We can see how God works. All right, let's look at it. Let's start by looking at the unmistakable situation, verses 1 through 5. Let's start by me reading verse 1. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Let's look at the man itself. Jesus is passing by. Where is he? He's still probably in Jerusalem. Now, how do we know that? It doesn't say that specifically. Well, since we already, I've already told you, we're bridging something. In John chapter 7, would you go with me to verse 2? In John chapter 7, verse 2, we were at the Feast of Booths. And where was that? He had gone from Galilee to Jerusalem. That would have been about the month of October. When we come to chapter 10 of John, turn with me to John chapter 10, verse 22. We will come to, according to verse 22, at that time, the Feast of Dedication. That is known to us as Hanukkah. If you've ever heard of that term used today. That's a feast of dedication. That is where? In Jerusalem, verse 22. So in chapter 7, he's in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths, about October. By the time we come to chapter 10, he's still in Jerusalem. We know that. And that's about the month of November, December, depending upon how things fall with the Jewish calendar. 
So there's somewhere in that gap, to give you approximate time that the Lord Jesus Christ is there. So he's still in Jerusalem. Not only that, we would be helped by our context. Go back to John chapter 9. Because in verse 7, he is told to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And uh, I know that the Hipkies just got back from Jerusalem. I don't know whether he got a chance to go through Hezekiah's tunnel. And that empties right into the pool of Siloam, what they believe, although there is some, another finding recently, and I won't go into that. But the bottom line, it's still referred to as the pool of Siloam. It's in Jerusalem. Okay, actually, that's in an area that's now controlled by the Arabs and so forth and, and so on. But at any rate, uh, it's in that area. So where is Jesus when he passes by? He's still in the Jerusalem area. That's what I want you to catch. And he was near the temple because that was where the people looked and they begged. Think about it. Don't turn there. In Acts chapter 3, when Peter is going to come into the temple with John, what do you got? You've got someone begging where? At the temple. That's what they did do at the temple. In Matthew 21, when the blind were looking to be healed, where were they? At the temple. So because of Scripture, and as we look at it, we can find out where he is. He's in Jerusalem, and he's near the temple, and Jesus passes by and sees him. And he tells us something very significant. What is it? We might bounce right over it. He saw a man blind from birth. That's important to us, and I think important why John puts that in here. This is congenital blindness. How did he know that? Well, he's God, first of all. But the thing that's obvious to us is not only did he know it, but his disciples knew it, according to verse 2, and the people knew it, according to verse 8 forward. They knew that this was a blindness that wasn't caused by an accident. He didn't spill some chemical in his eyes after he was born and all of a sudden couldn't see. This was not something where he was on his camel and fell down and got blind. This wasn't situations like that. This was congenital right from birth. This was that way. No accident. It was well known. It had happened, obviously, a long time. He's now a man. He's begging. What does that tell us? He's totally relying upon others. This man is blind. He can't see. He can't get around. His whole life is dependent upon somebody else. Can't help himself. Doctors cannot help this man. They will not be able to cure him. No religious service called at 7 p.m. at some meeting hall is going to be able to cure this man. Out of the question. This has to have the hand of God, only the hand of God, because the condition has always been this way. All that this man knows, think about it, it's terrible. All this man knows is darkness. I cannot imagine what it would be like not to be able to see and enjoy the benefits. We take that for granted every day. When I hear people even that are colorblind and so forth, I honestly think to myself, and that's usually common with men, how tragic. They can't even tell the shades and so forth. How beautiful God's created this, this world and so forth. That's a privilege. This man's in total darkness. Hasn't seen forms, hasn't seen colors, hasn't seen the beauty of creation since he's been born. He's been in total darkness. His condition is known by himself. It's known by his parents. It's known by the leaders. It's known by the common folks. You see, this is different from what we see today. That's why he stuck it in here. This is very, very different. You know, one of the ones, the text that we read in Matthew said that their, recite, their sight was returned to them. They had been able to see, then they couldn't see. Now they could see again. Not this one. 
This one's from birth. No gimmicks, no audience plants for healing at all. But I want you to notice something else in this. Not only is Jesus passing by and we see the condition of the man, I want you to secondly take a look at the disciples. And boy, did this one, as I studied it, and this doesn't come out of commentaries, but when I studied it, my heart was getting rent when I go into the area I'm about to give to you. Take a look at the disciples. Now, who are the disciples? Verse 2. We know who they are. Who? Followers of who? Come on. Jesus. These are the followers of Jesus in verse 2. Now, it doesn't say it specifically, but probably, as you study the text and you follow the mission trip, if you will, of the Lord, the apostles are here. Not only are the disciples, meaning those who followed Christ and maybe have truly believed on him, because certainly we've seen them sorted out, but the apostles are here. What does that mean, Pastor Dan? I want you to remember something. They have heard some things, have they not? What? The teaching of Jesus. These are the people who have heard Jesus teach what? I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am living water. These people were theologically solid. Secondly, these people had done what? They witnessed some things with their eyes, their own eyes. What? The miraculous ability of Jesus Christ. What do you mean? They have seen, as we've studied in the book of John, the sick man healed. The centurion's son, excuse me, servant, healed. What else have they seen? Water changed to wine. What else? The feeding of 5,000. What else have these followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, seen? Jesus walk on water. Now, we read about those things. They saw it. Why? You bring up that, Pastor Dan. I don't know why my study went here, other than prayer and so forth. But I want you to know something. These disciples who have been theologically trained, who have witnessed with their eyes all that Jesus has been able to do, watch how they show compassion. Watch how they love this man born blind, right? Watch this. Watch how they asked Jesus and turned to him and said, could you help him? Watch how they pick up the blind man and say, blind since birth? Come to Jesus. Let me take you to him. Watch how they turn to the blind man and say, let me tell you the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've got the greatest message in the world. Watch how they turn to the blind man and say, I've got the Messiah standing right next to you. I've got the greatest message in the world for you. These are the followers of Christ who are theologically sound. These are the followers of Christ who've seen what he has done in their lives in the lives of others, 
And they're looking at a man born blind since birth, and they know it, verse 2. Do they do any of that? No. They're just like we are. What do they do? They notice the condition, and they're indifferent. They notice the condition, and it becomes a basis of theological discussion. I wonder if Jesus can heal the man born blind. Would he do it in this particular situation? What do you think, Pastor Dan? What do you, you know, what, what do you, and I'm being facetious, but that's what it becomes. No compassion. No witnessing the gospel. No taking them to Jesus who can heal them. No, none of this. The disciples. How convicting that was to me. We see people all around us at work, in the neighborhood. We know they're without Christ. We know they're blind. We've got the answer. And we've got to get off to our theological discussions. We've got to get off and analyze why they are the way they are. And totally are indifferent to a soul that's doomed to hell unless they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They fail to connect their Bible knowledge, their theological training, to their practical daily living and cannot even relate in the world that they're living to. Have you ever done that? I have to sadly admit I have. Seen people. I know what this book says. I know what the gospel is. And how many people have I been indifferent to when I've seen them? How many of us have driven in the streets of Methuen and seen a man walking down in a suit week after week, stumbling in traffic, wondering when this guy's going to get hit, and have commented on how stupid the guy is and have never stopped to talk to the man about Christ. How many of us have talked about our neighbors and the things that they're doing and the things that are going on and have not taken the time because we're too afraid of what our neighbors are going to think of us to bring them to Jesus. These disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, John put this in here for a reason, folks. These disciples of Christ had no compassion, though they talked about compassion. It is very easy for me it is very easy for Pastor Stringer, it is very easy for a Sunday school teacher to talk about love, compassion, the Word of God, and then to show none of it. But it's not just us, it's the same with you. How many do we invite to church? Well, you know how long Pastor Dan preached, you wouldn't want to invite anybody. Yeah, I can see the Lord saying that. Right. I could see the disciples saying, are you kidding me? He'll speak all day. Don't bring him to him. Nehemiah opened the word of God and from all day long just taught the word of God 
and the people loved it because it's needed. Oh, we disciples of Jesus Christ, oh, we who know the Lord, what in the world are we doing? They make a wrong assumption. Point number two. Boy, I thought it'd be a lot further than this. Point number two. They make a a wrong assumption. What? They look at this man, verse two, and the disciples, they don't bring him to Christ. They don't bring Christ to him. They turn around and say, teacher, come on, I want another theological discussion. Who sinned? This man or his parents that we should be born blind. Immediately, these followers of Christ, those who knew Christ, those who knew theology, make a wrong assumption. It was very common thinking, and I haven't got the time to get into all of that, with the Jewish leaders and with the people to think anytime somebody was suffering, wheelchair, blind, cane, whatever it is, Christ, I mean God obviously, is judging them. They sinned. They did something wrong. You don't think we think that way? Stay with me. It's the same today. Do you know how many Christians, when someone dies, when someone gets cancer, when a child is not walking with God, listen, when a church is not growing numerically the way you think it should be growing, do you know how many quote-unquote Christians turn around and say, I know why that person died. I know why that person's sick. God is judging them because I know what's really going on in that life. Followers of Christ, you don't know it all. Neither do I. Yet, if someone turned around to you when you were in the hospital, when you were sick, and they were objective enough to be away from the situation and not listen to all of your explanations and turned around and said, you know what? You were there because God was judging you. You would be the first one to say, oh, no, I was sick, I had this, they did that, they did this, this one did that, and wouldn't want to hear it. You see? We're no different. It's a tragic situation. Let me give you 10 quick points, and I mean they're going to be fast. If you've got a pen, it better be on electric. If you don't have an electric pen, get the tape. Let me give you 10 quick reasons that I believe that need to be brought up while I'm dealing with this text regarding sickness and disease in the world. Number one, here it is quick. Sickness and disease, you might not be ready for this one, is a result of the fall. It is. Sickness and disease can go right back to the Garden of Eden. All of it is a result of the fall in general terms. Secondly, number two, God does allow sickness, disease, and suffering to continue from the Garden of Eden all the way until what? He returns and the new heaven and the earth are developed. 
It will continue, and he allows it to take its course. There will be leprosy. There will be cancer. There will be skin disease. There will be heart attacks. There will be strokes until the Lord changes it. He's going to allow it to continue. Number three, some of them, some of them specifically are the result of sin. Example, 1 Corinthians 11. There were believers who were dying. There were believers who were suffering because of what they were doing. So sometimes it is specific. Four, some are a result of your own stupid decisions and my stupid decisions. What do you mean by that? You're pretty bold on that. Yeah, you take drugs, you will face the results. You smoke, you get cancer. You get involved in alcohol and drinking, you get emphysema. No, or does that come? No, liver disease. Sorry, wrong one. I'm not a medical doctor, obviously. The point is this. You make decisions to do certain things, and then you turn around and say, oh, no, I got this pain. You brought it on yourself. That's a possibility. Five, some are a result of decisions of others. What, what is that? You get a drunken driver coming down the street, swerves into the lane, and kills somebody. You're the consequence. It's a result of his stupidity or her stupidity. And in case you don't want me to go any further on that, by the way, or bring it home, I'm going to do it. It's also a result sometimes of other decisions when they're text messaging while they're driving. That's the truth. Or they're on the phone and drop the phone and so forth. I just watched a video with my family purposely on that very issue where a, a young man who was a very good student, very good everything, very good athlete, ended up in jail because he was text messaging, swerved and killed two people. Don't be fooling. You make decisions like that, you can affect somebody. And we're blaming God. Six, very quickly, listen to this one. No matter how careful you are, this is for all of us, no matter how health conscious you are, no matter how much you exercise, no matter how much advanced, sophisticated technology things become medically, sickness, disease, and death will temporarily beat you. You will lose, and so will I, temporarily. Why? Because we will die, no matter what you do. Seven, God is sovereign. He has healed, he can heal, and he does heal. He has that ability. Eight, God does allow certain situations simply as a test of our faith. Nine, after the heavens and the earth are changed, then there will be no more death, no more sin, and no more disease, but not until then. And here's the one I really want you to get, number 10, because it's one I need to get. Unless we know all of the facts, and we never do. I shouldn't say never. 90% of the time we don't. We cannot know. We cannot know why someone else is suffering. We can't. You might think you know, but unless you're absolutely sure of all the facts, be careful because God might turn that on you when you start judging why other people are suffering and you think it's because of sin when it's not. So don't be so quick to judge on that basis. In our particular text, Jesus speaks up. Let's at least deal with that this morning. What does he say? He says in verse 3, we saw the disciples, 
They're theologically sound. They've seen everything. They don't even point them to Christ. They question who sinned. Jesus turns around and gives them the answer in verses 3 to 5. What is it? It is neither that this man sinned nor his parents. How's that? And by the way, he's not saying that this man is not a sinner. He's not saying that his parents are not sinners. That is not what he's dealing with. What he's specifically saying is this particular situation of him being born blind is not a direct result of sin at all. This man's still a sinner. His parents are still sinners. But this particular situation is not a result of sin. They would have never known that. They didn't have all the facts. What is it then? Jesus, he tells you, in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. What was the purpose? The purpose of this particular situation, John writes, is so that we would see that Jesus is the Messiah. The purpose of this particular man being born blind wasn't because of sin. It wasn't because of his decision. It wasn't because of parents' decision. It wasn't because of foolishness. It wasn't because of anything else other than in this particular case, God had a specific purpose, and that is that God could get the glory through that particular individual. Why? Born blind, no doctor can help, he can't help, no one else can help, no one can do anything, only God can intervene, and this miracle is going to show that only Jesus can be God. He was the only one that could do this. The works of God should be seen in him. Let me do a little side trip on that one for just a moment. What a privilege. Do you know that God might be doing things in your life, some of the things that you'll be going through, maybe some of the things that you're facing now? God specifically wants to accomplish something, and that is that he get the glory. I can tell you, you people could testify of this. You've known enough people in this church. There have been people that have suffered from cancer and died. It's suffered other situations far beyond that I've ever suffered. And when you looked at them, all you could do was praise God and see the hand of God going through it. And they've stood up in this church and given testimony after testimony of how by going through that situation, how God has worked in their life. Listen, if God chooses to use you to show his glory through himself, don't push off that difficult situation. What a privilege to be used by the living God to be a testimony for his honor and glory. And I want you to catch this before we close for today. I'm only going to get it through verse 5. In verse 4, it's very interesting. And I do believe that the best translation is we. So I deal with that at least on the surface for you. It's interesting because he says, we must work the works of him. And then he says, who sent me? That is Jesus Christ. So I believe he's, first of all, specifically referring to him and his disciples in the work of God. He includes them in it. We must work the works of God. Why? As long as it is day, night is coming that no man can work. There is a time in which no one can work anymore. It's all done. And Jesus Christ is saying in this particular instant, this man born blind is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for God to be glorified. It's an opportunity for God to do a work that he wants to do, and it's not always going to be around. And then he ties into that something he's already said, I am the light of the world, and as long as I am here, I am able to bring light. Let me give you an application here with the we. 
Listen this way. This is our time. As long as you are breathing God's air, listen to me. If you are one day away from being called out of this world, this is your time to be used by God to accomplish the things of God. Don't waste it. This is the time. And he's letting his disciples know that. He's saying, we, he includes them, we're able, we must do the works of God while he sent me. They were busy with theological discussions in verse 2. They were forgetting all the miracles that they had seen. They were forgetting what God did in his life. They were forgetting the teachings of God, and they were lost someplace in their world and couldn't even recognize the need of this man. All they saw was the blindness without the solution, and they had it. And Jesus is saying to them, we must work the works of God while we have the time because the time's going to come. We can't work anymore. See some application there. Pastor Dan, I need to wake up. You need to wake up that this is our opportunity to serve the Lord and to be using this opportunity to accomplish the things of God that he wants to accomplish through us. Don't waste it. Yes, we are light and salt to the world, but are we? Are we being that way? Are we being that way? A couple of things in closing. I have not done justice to verses 4 and 5. I know that. But in, in the passage, as I wrap it up, let, let's just think about this, and we'll have to leave the rest of the thing till next week. I didn't think I would, but going to have to do that. Don't be so quick to judge someone else when they're in sickness, disease, suffering. Please don't. I do that, and by God's grace, I'm going to try not to do that. Don't be so quick unless you know all the facts. More importantly than that, see what God's trying to do. I'm talking to believers right now, disciples, followers of Christ. See what God's trying to accomplish Allow him to use the time that you've got here for the glory of God by just yielding to him and letting him use you. Take that which you have learned. Take that which you have seen in your own life and the life of others and use it to have compassion on the lost, to bring them to Christ and to see beyond the circumstances that they're in to help them to see the Messiah. Now's the time. If you're here without Christ, this miracle is so obvious. Born blind. Since birth. Who could heal that? Only God. Who could heal it? Only the true Messiah who met the qualifications. This is written here for you. Why? That you might see that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. Today is your day of opportunity. Don't keep pushing it off because the night's going to come where you're not going to have the chance to believe on Christ. Believe on Him today. Trust in Him and come to salvation. See that He's the Messiah and you'll have life through His name. And your eyes, spiritually, will be opened to the light of the world. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in God, I thank you for the word of God. 
Thank you for this tremendous miracle. Uh, I don't know how many times I've read this miracle or been through this text, but I thank you for the conviction that it's brought to my own life. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to see the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone here has not come to him, help them to see that he's the light of the world, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that they would come to believe and have life through his name. Those of us that call ourselves Christians, disciples, followers of Christ, Help us, Father, to look beyond the circumstances, not to be so quick to judge. Help us, Father, to be able to apply the knowledge that we gain in our reading of the Word and our studying of the Word in the things that we see you're doing through answered prayer and the lives of others. Help us to see the application of that to everyday living when we see other people. Help us to go way beyond theological discussions. Help us to go way beyond the critiques of the situation and to have love and compassion like the Lord Jesus Christ did, and to reach out to the needs of others and to draw them to the Son of God. Oh, Father, work in our hearts. I thank you and praise you so much for your graciousness. We could browbeat ourselves this morning and go out of here with our heads down, but help us, Father, to go up with our eyes looking up, thanking you for your grace in our lives, being stirred up anew and by your grace to be able to yield to the Spirit of God that he might work in us in such a way that we would be a shining light individually and as a church. That others might be drawn to Christ through us. That we might be, in a sense, anxious. Not for the things of this world, but anxious, Father, to share with others who you are and the things that you're doing so that we want them to come and hear. We want them to come and see I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.